On the Empire Podcast this week, we're rescuing damsels in distress for Whit Stillman's new film, being Elmo in the most adorable documentary you'll see this year, chatting to Eugene Levy and Jennifer Coolidge ahead of American Pie reunion, and assembling with Marvel Studios head Kevin Feige to talk about the first big comic book film of the summer, Avengers Assemble. Hello, pod racers. I'm Helen O'Hara, and welcome to the Empire Podcast, your weekly dose of film news, interviews, reviews, and complete madness. Now, faced with an extraterrestrial army of film subjects to talk about this week, I've assembled a super team, the likes of which the world has never seen. First up is our very own Iron Man, the technologically enhanced digital guru that is James Dyer. Hello, Helen. <laughs> it's nice to be here. <laughs> What are you doing? Destroy all humans. <laughs> well, that is the James we all know. That's your prep. Well, maybe not love, but, you know. <laughs> uh, next, we have the long-haired, bearded, hammer-wielding Ali Plum, uh, who doesn't actually wield a hammer very much, but, you know, he's close enough. How are you doing, Ali? I'm doing well. And yes, I have left my hammer at home. Okay, we're not going to make the obvious joke there. Let's just move quickly ar- along, because rounding out the team is the clean-cut, clean-living, punch-bag-exploding Philip DeSemlin, who is half American, so he's as close as we're going to get to Captain America. How are you, Phil? Very well, thank you very much. <laughs> okay. You don't sound American. Um, no. You're a fraud. No, I'm not. Um, my mum's American, though, so, you know, there's Qu- that. So enough. that qualifies me. Well, it was, I, was, I was reaching a bit with these definitions, I'll be <laughs> honest, you know. And um, Before you say anything, by the way, everybody, that makes me Black Widow and not Hulk. Um, so Hello honest. Smash. If you're assembling the team, wouldn't that make you Nick Fury? But I've got two eyes. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> well. uh, now, let's start off, shall we, with, uh, with some readers' comments. Uh, all week you've been emptying your thought bins into our comment lorry via tweets, Facebook messages and emails. So let's have a look at some of this week's crop. First up, Shane Bayless asks, Are there any movies that you hated first time around but now really enjoy or love? For me, I didn't get Anchorman on first viewing, but now I quote it on a bi-weekly occurrence. The Born Identity. What? Really? Honestly. Now, in my defence... No, I have no defence. <laughs> uh, no, it's basically because I'd read the book, and um, it's one of these things where you've read the book, and I should probably be more embarrassed about having read a Robert Ludlum book, but mm, definitely. Um, I'd read the book, and so I expected a certain story from it, and the film deviates quite substantially from the book, mm. and it cuts down on a lot of the more intricate story elements. So I was just very disappointed that lots of the stuff you want to see in Carlos the Jackal and all that stuff just wasn't in it at all. And they'd sort of stripped out a sort of small part of the plot and made a film after that. And so I, I came out a bit disgruntled. Then I watched it again and realised, actually, do you know what? The film's utterly brilliant and the book is utter shit. <laughs> so um, I've, I've, you know, rectified I, I think there's a separate topic, I think, conversation topic on that kind of book disappointment you get when you watch certain things and go, mm-hmm. I read the book and I'm expecting this and it's going to be, that's going to be amazing, blah, blah, blah. It's a weird example, but I put forward Sky One's uh, adaptations of the Pratchett books where I yeah. just go, wait, no, hang on, actually, no, please, that's not, oh, come on. So Weren't they abominations? That's essentially what I was skirting around, yeah. They, they were not good. But yeah, in terms of answering this question, this uh, Shane Bayless guy says, you know, what did I hate the first time around? I didn't hate this movie, but I, I certainly didn't quite get the love for The Dark Knight Rises when it first came out. And again, that makes me sound like a total Sorry, maniac. the Dark Knight, otherwise you've been time-travelling again. Uh, I mean, The Dark Knight, yes, The Dark Knight. I just, I didn't quite understand why there were so many things that kept happening and everything was glossed over and why did the boat and all that kind of stuff. I was just a bit like, this is messy. I watched it again last night for maybe the fourth time. And I love it. I absolutely it t- love it. It took four viewings for no, 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 no. The Dark Knight. I watched it for the fourth time last night. But you loved it on the second viewing? You've got it. Right. You watched okay. it four times last You are night. mental. Yes, all in one night. <laughs> what? You're weird. Mine is uh, The Rock, which I think is in Born Identity embarrassment territory, isn't it, I suppose? In the name of Zeus's butthole, what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't really, I didn't really, I don't know, maybe I wasn't in the mood for it when I went to see it at the cinema. That's appalling. But I remember coming out and it was at one of those cinemas where they ask you if you enjoyed the film and then they offer you, you know, another ticket if you didn't like it. And, I, and, they, and I, maybe I was influenced by that and I just went, no, not really. <laughs> but it's having amazing. seen it since multiple times Stanley Goodspeed uh, yeah I don't know what I was thinking I really love it yeah. but it's my only Michael Bay film that I actually love or don't hate well, Armageddon Armageddon's no I don't like Armageddon no I really like it I do and it's one of these things where it's a film that you love despite the fact that the fundamental flaw of Armageddon being instead of instead of teaching astronauts to use a drill they somehow think it's better to teach drillers to become astronauts they totally explain who's that. thinking of this yeah, uh, honestly this makes complete perfect sense to me um, um, more or less was that was it my imagination or was there an actual homage to armageddon in battleship when you have all of the sort of septuagenarian naval 
dudes on the boat. I think the whole of battleship was pretty much an kind of. Homage. Who would think to homage Michael Bay? It just doesn't make any any sense to a- me. Apart from the rock. Apart from the rock. Apart from the rock. Yeah. Yes. No. Homage the rock. Yes. Okay. I'll be honest. Mine would probably be the apartment, and the reason I. I, I didn't hate it for a summer ride. I'd like to make that perfectly clear, but I didn't love it. Because, and I got, the reason I didn't is because I went in with a bit of a chip on my shoulder because everyone had told me this was a better Billy Wilder film than some like it hot. And I'm like, impossible. There can be no such thing. And and I sat and watched it. And I was like, yeah, it's not nearly as good as some like it hot. Don't like it at all. Um, anyway, and every time I've watched it since, I've liked it more. And I'd like to apologise to Mr. Wilder um, hmm. for not saying more that. than some like it hot. No, don't be silly. Okay, but as much. I can understand that with the apartment though because you might be expecting something different from what it is mm. you know more of the broad some like a hot you style thought comedy it wouldn't be it's about not, the apartment you know it isn't yeah it's quite what? <laughs> oh shut up <laughs> if my brother was here I'd unleash him upon you at this moment and thankfully he's not but yeah the apartment goes to some quite dark places in a way that some like a hot doesn't so maybe yeah. again I don't know I think that's probably it just took, it took a little bit of, of growing time alright our next question Jonathan Sale asks do you ever get frustrated when watching films that are a brilliant idea or concept but are generally awfully made or with terrible endings, such as films like The Happening? A lot of these here are comic book movies where you know previously that they've, they've been done really well in a different medium. So many, like, you could have made a good movie out of Elektra, out of Catwoman, out of The Spirit. X3. Yeah, X3. All of these movies could have been brilliant. We have proof of them being brilliant, as I say, in other mediums. And they just drop the ball. Often it's these are sequels or kind of spin-offs that they just don't execute well or they think oh they'll make money it doesn't really matter um so i'd put those forward as my examples fair enough phil mm. i don't know funny enough i was reading about somebody saying about the mist that that was one of those films really? frank darabont's that had an ending that kind of ruined it and i thought the ending was amazing but um the yeah, mist is really good yeah no it is mm. so i guess you know it, it sort of depends where you're coming from really mm. um, I, I must admit while i think the ending's very good it destroyed me I kind of wandered around in a kind yeah. of fugue afterwards, just didn't know what to do with myself. No, it's mm. pretty bleak. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I would actually mention, I wouldn't say this is a brilliant idea or concept, but I would mention Van Helsing for a film that I think had the potential to be quite good and ended up quite, quite terrible. I mean, even the casting's okay. It's just that the script and the story are blooming mm. awful. Yeah. People seem to feel this way about Watchmen, as I remember. Not being a, such a massive Watchmen fan originally. Mm, it, it, yeah. I actually, I, I remember... I was quite blown away by it. Yeah, I loved it. And I know a lot of people really were very disappointed, but maybe that's because that's whatever what it was they had in their minds, Zack Snyder couldn't make happen. That's like what we were talking about earlier. Mm. You know, the book expectation. Mm. You just couldn't live up to it. No, exactly. I think that's the best film that could have been made of that book at under six hours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I agree. Apart from the music choice for the sex scene, but that's another... <laughs> oh, God, uh, there's yes. another whole other t- topic of conversation. Now, if you still want to get in touch with us after all of that and uh, perhaps join the storied ranks of those whose messages have been read out on air, then just drop us a line. You can tweet us using the hashtag EmpirePodcast or email us at podcast at empireonline.com or Facebook us at Empire Magazine. We'll also have someone on the roof looking out for smoke signals and or carrier pigeons. So basically, we've got the bases covered. Um, Now, as ever, we'll soon be turning our eye of Sauron-like gaze on this week's film news. But first, it's time for another listener-created jingle. And guess who it's from, people. Guess. Go on. You'll never guess. I won't. You can't make me. No, it is. It's microfarad Melody Eel, who's brought us a riff inspired by being Elmo. Am I Elmo? Wow, that was a that was an Oscar winning uh, riff there, really, wasn't it? We've kind of moved on from jingles to just songs now, haven't we? <laughs> wow. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are at this point begging you, uh, please, please send us your jingles or stings to podcast at empireonline.com. Quality, as you can tell, is not what we're looking for. We just want something that's vaguely musical and preferably not based on existing material. So let's have a look at this week's movie news, shall we? Now, first up, we've got. Uh, a story that Pixar has added another film to their slate and it's based on the Mexican festival of Dia de los Muertos. What do we think of this, gentlemen? I think it sounds amazing. 
I don't know quite kind of what, what we can expect. It seems like a massive departure for Pixar. Really. It does. It seems more into the sort of Tim Burton animation yeah. territory. The likes of obviously Corpse Bride actually had bits that had a bit of a Day of the Dead look about yeah. them. And there's a short film called This Way Up, which had that kind of feel about it as well. It was an Oscar nominated short a couple of years ago. You know, it could be a little bit cool. But there's, but it's a really colourful and not actually creepy festival, right? I mean, well, people mm, go out and have When breaks. I hear this, when I read this, the only thing I can think of is Grim Fandango, which was uh, a LucasArts computer game from the late 90s. Ali, you probably played this, haven't you? I have, and I loved it. I'm yeah. a big, big fan. You know, I would scream with happiness if it turned out anything like Grim Fandango, which was kind of a neo-noir, Casablanca riffing, yeah. Maltese Falcon. Set in the afterlife. Set in the mm. afterlife, which was to do with the Day of the Dead. That was essentially the beginning of it, was a festival like the Day of the Dead. It's like John Huston's Jack Skellington. <laughs> yes, kind yes, of thing. you could say that. Yeah. But that would be amazing. That sounds amazing. It looks amazing. I was very happy when the first commenter on the news story about this said, oh my God, if they make a Grim Fandango movie, I'm going to die um, yeah. of happiness, presumably. <laughs> um, One hopes. Or, or just to be part just of the game. Hang in there, guys. Just to be part of the game. There. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, as you were saying, I felt the same way. I thought, mm. oh, wow. I think at this point in Pixar we trust, right? So yeah. anything they're making, we're interested in having a look at. But how does this fit in with like Pixar's philosophy about starting with story? Because it seems like this is the the world well yeah but they start with story but they don't necessarily tell us what the story is no true so presumably they know what they're doing (laughs) you would hope this is where the trust comes in Phil yeah they seem to have a decent track record so (laughs) this is Lee (laughs) Uncridge isn't it doing this this is Lee Uncridge Mm. yeah who who of course directed uh, Toy Story 3 he's been a Pixar editor since pretty much day one so he's been working on refining story from day one and he's of course on the brain trust as well the famous Pixar governing body so in short yay Far me underexcited. All right. Uh, next up, Adam McKay talked to us exclusively about Anchorman 2. So we've got a few more snippets about that. So what have we learned? We've learned that Anchorman 2 will be set in 1978, not in, I believe, 1975, was it? Might have been 1976. Mm-hmm. Yes. Anyway, it's a few years after the end of the uh, previous film. But what I find slightly confusing is at the end of the first film we see Veronica Corningstone and Ron Burgundy, you know, hosting the World News Network. Uh, They are the first couple co-anchor super thing. So how is this going to fall apart? Presumably, it's been hinted at, I've seen on Twitter, that there'll be some kind of divorce going on here. (gasps) I presume, this isn't actually an interview that we got. The interview that we've got essentially says that the gang are back, everyone's in. They've written about, I think, a couple of pages of notes of what might happen. But there are no, there's no script as such. They've also said, surprise, surprise, that it will be heavy on improvisation. We've also learned that, and this is what a lot of people discussed on the internet when it first was announced there'll be an Anchorman 2. There'll be another big fight. We'll have another big fight yes. with all the different news teams. How they crowbar that into the story, I have no idea, but I can't wait to see how they do it. He's also said that it's going to be the beginning of the rolling news, 24-hour news kind of thing. So the... Uh, the action news team are going to have to deal with Latino and African American news anchors. That could be kind of where the big fight comes in potentially. Ah, diversity. Um, yes, diversity is going to be a problem for them mm. again. <laughs> An old, old wooden ship. I, do, I, I don't care. I can't. <gasps> I can't care. This is. I'm just damning myself like I did last week, aren't I? Here. Um, I, it's another film. I want to like Anchorman, and I just. I just. I'm a bit meh about it. It feels like a bunch of very funny friends got together and made a home movie. And, Why would and that be a bad thing? <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's amazing. You know, there's gags in there, but it's just—is it—is it? It's lots of gags strung together rather than a sort of a, a movie with like a story and a narrative and. You know, yes, admittedly they kick a dog off a bridge, which is great, but no, I just no. Then again, it could just be because it's quoted so endlessly in the office that it drives me slightly insane. I don't know what you mean. I, for one, have never, ever quoted Anchorman in the office, and neither has Chris. Okay, uh, next up, we have a couple of casting stories for Iron Man 3. Um, The news came this week that uh, Guy Pearce has joined the film and also Jessica Chastain, so adding some serious uh, thespian heavyweights to, uh, to this Marvel effort. I'm pleased about this. Both uh-huh. people are excellent. I love Jessica Chastain, not just because she's very pretty, but also because her performances in The Tree of Life, The Debt and The Help have all been mm. acclaimed. Likewise, Guy Pearce, who we met a couple of weeks ago, was not only a delight in person, but also is great to watch on screen. As you were saying with the lockout review, even if you don't like the movie, you will like Guy Pearce because he's Guy Pearce and he's always... Great. He's like a human clan, though, isn't he? He would literally tell you nothing about any of the films he's in. Admittedly, that's because Ridley Scott promised to kill his cast members that have spilled any beans about Prometheus. But I, I think we can expect the same thing from, from Iron Man. From Shane Black on Iron Man from Sh- Well, possibly, yeah. 
Um, we can't even really say on the podcast what Guy Pearce is playing. If you want to know, you can look up the story, but it will actually tell you um, a little bit more about what the plot will, is. Will it, though? Because he's playing Aldrich Killian, isn't he? <laughs> we can totally say that. Yeah, but to, to, Ladies and gentlemen, no, no, no. I tried. This no, is absolutely fine because his name's going to get out. But if you don't, if that name means nothing to you, then you're fine. You're absolutely fine. And frankly, if you know enough that it does mean something to you, you probably know too much already, or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. So that's that's the role he's playing, which is a geneticist, and it, it's it's from the whole Extremis series, isn't it, of the comics by Warren Ellis? Um, yeah, and but do we know that that's exactly the storyline it's following, or are we just essentially extrapolating from the name? It's apparently drawn from. This has been talked about for a while now. Mm. So in the way we presume Dark Knight Rises is drawn from Nightfall, but we don't. You know, we're not presuming it actually yeah. is. Yeah. So it may reflect elements of that plot. If but also, massive comics. spoiler, Jessica Chastain will be playing sexy scientist. <laughs> it's not yeah. such a massive spoiler. I did get a bit worried, though, because I quite like Pepper Potts and Tony Stark together, and I, I don't want anybody, you know, messing with that dynamic. And uh, and so, Chastain, you know, we know you're a vegan and therefore have superpowers. We learned that from Scott Pilgrim. But uh, but let's hope she doesn't break those two up. But you can see that could be a possible... I mean, it's not going too far to presume that, you know, she's got red hair and is hot pepper Botts has red hair and is hot he's an international philanthropist super playboy there might be a love triangle of some sort she might just be doing science in the film oh come on sexy science sexy science clearly yeah <laughs> get it right sexy bunsen burners yeah right Do you know? yeah know if what... anyone does want want spoilers on 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 iron man then yeah just look it up on the internet there you go I'm still going to wonder what a sexy Bunsen burner looks like, to be honest. I'm not sure I want to be told, though. So. Moving on. Moving on. Um, Amazing Spider-Man 2. Uh, yes, Amazing Spider-Man isn't out yet, but we already have Amazing Spider-Man 2 greenlit. We've already had a bit of the, uh, one, at least one draft of the script written, but now um, Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orki have been hired to write another draft. What do we think? I think you find it's Orsi. I apologise. Um, they're quite divisive in some ways, aren't they, really? Mm. Uh, in that they've done really great things like Mission Impossible 3, Star Trek, and they've also done things like Transformers mm. 1 and 2 <laughs> and Cowboys and Aliens. They are definitely darlings of the of the studios at the moment, aren't they? They yeah. seem to be mm. the go-to guys. And I read something interesting about Cowboys and Aliens, which was that it was it was kind of like they, they'd had this project kicking around for a long time, but they couldn't work out how to bring it to the screen in any kind of cost-effective way. So these two guys were like, well, we'll have instead of an alien invasion full-on and all the CGI costs that entails, we're just going to have an alien commando unit. Um, and that's the sort of thing studios love, because they're like, okay, we don't have to worry about, you know, mm. masses of CGI and, um, you know, smaller, more manageable kind of plot lines. Um, that's you're saying they're terrible, the pound though. land of screenwriting too. No, God, no, Star Trek was awesome, I thought. So... Mm. I don't know. Do, do you think Spider-Man fanboys will be nervous about this, or will they look at Star Trek and think, actually, these guys are a safe pair of hands? It's so hard to tell, not even having seen the first one mm. yet. I mean, I think that's that's the problem. We don't know too much about the world we're dealing with. We know the first one is meant to be on a smaller scale. It's meant to be more based around Peter's school. There's meant to be less kind of, you know, big metrop, uh, big metropolitan New York scenes. Um, but whether that will hold true for the sequel, you know, we don't quite know yet. So. Because huh. they've, they've brought these guys in to work on a second draft, haven't they? Because they clearly yeah. haven't liked the one that Steve Close and James Vanderbilt put together. Mm, that's right. So, But that's not unusual, is what it? What does that tell us? <gasps> I do know. There were too many... There weren't enough alien commando units. and <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. Or possibly those guys have other, you know, other contractual obligations, other scripts to write. I and mean, it's not unusual to have you know, multiple drafts of a script by different drift script writers on a big blockbuster. Well, yeah, just look so. at The Rock. That had about four or five. Exactly, and look how amazing that was in the end. I think this is just one of those question mark news stories that you're aware of. You've just got to kind of bear it in the back of your mind. And as you're watching Spider-Man, be careful not to be spending all of that time going, I wonder how they're going to turn this into the sequel. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and uh, finally, on a lighter note, as they say, there's a story that a bunch of billionaires are setting up a new venture called Planetary Resources Inc., which plans to mine space. And among the consultants on the project, which is why we're mentioning it, apart from its obvious sort of sci-fi movie leanings, uh, is one Jay Cameron. So what we're saying is James Cameron is strip-mining the universe. 
I'm saying that James Cameron, you know, is basically setting up Wayland Utani. Yeah, well, no, this is this is Avatar, isn't it? They're, they're looking for unobtainium on asteroids orbiting the Earth. Well, apparently they're strictly looking for like platinum and palladium rather than unobtainium. I'm sure if they find some unobtainium, they'll be quite happy because it's usually unobtainable. Ooh. Yeah. Oh God. Um, I'm so sorry. this is asteroids that are kind of floating around. In space. In hmm. space. In space. And they're going to land dropships on them. Just <laughs> what they're going to do is around. they're going to they're find deep sea drillers and they're going to teach <laughs> them to become astronauts. <laughs> sending them into space with Bruce Willis. Okay. What? Is there anything James Cameron can't do? He's been to the bottom of the sea. He's sending, you know, crochet. Bruce Willis crochet. into space. He's, he's, you know. You know, he's actually. Jim very, Cameron cures cancer. He's actually very environmentally friendly and into reusability and sustainability, so I bet you he can crochet, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> he should I've run for told. president I'd vote for him Were I American Phil could vote for him I can vote for him Yes Okay so there you go James Cameron You have one vote In your vote for president <laughs> So bag. hang on just, just to be clear He's already conquered The ocean floor Yeah He's looking to conquer Outer space And we want him to also Conquer the earth Yes Right I think we need A James Cameron-esque Despot In charge of the world Yes okay. but usually You say that's you True mm. <laughs> Okay Well on that Slightly disturbing uh, slightly fascistic note shall we move on so before we get to the week's reviews we had a veritable movie mogul in to visit recently as marvel studios head kevin feige came in to talk avengers assemble now he may not be a household name in your house but he's certainly one in ours this is the man whose grand master plan it has been to get all these superheroes together in one film so we figured we'd quiz him completely spoiler free on how he did it so here have a listen was it a marketing thing? Was it a legal thing? Why, why Marvel Avengers Assemble? I would say it was a combination, right? I mean, it's uh, uh, they're, they're n- no decision like that is done lightly. Mm. Uh, we're releasing the movie all around the world, and in each market they look at what they need to tweak and how they need to change things, you know, to, to, to uh, uh, make it specific for that market. And in this market, you got another <laughs> word. <laughs> yeah, so you didn't want any confusion with John Steed and Emma Peel, I guess. So. I didn't want people being disappointed, yes, that it was <laughs> only Black Widow in a type-like outfit and not, uh, <laughs> not anyone else. Oh, you had Maria, Maria Hill in there as well. You've I guess got that was two, Black. Yes, two that's true. type Black outfits, it's fine. So, um, you know, th- this film is obviously something that you've had on your kind of master plan. You've been plotting for, for quite some time. When did it first begin to look like it might definitely happen? Well, I would say we started... You know, listen, we've been dreaming about it for a long, long time. And it was midway through production. At least that's the way I've been telling the story now. I think it was midway through production of Iron Man 1. Right. That it occurred to us that we had all of these, you know, anybody that wasn't, any Marvel character that wasn't tied up at Fox or Sony with the Spidey or the Mm X-Men contracts, we had. And the writers of the first Iron Man film uh, wanted to have a sort of an authoritative CIA type character come and start following on the heels of Tony Stark and ask him what's going on. And that, of course, was, was Agent Coulson, Clark mm-hmm. Gregg. And they said, hey, can we use S.H.I.E.L.D.? And over the years, people working on those other films at other studios had asked us that same question. It was always, no, we're sorry. These characters are here. These characters are there. And for the first time, we went, yeah, you can use them. We've got it all. We can use all these characters. And it was in a very sort of casual conversation with Sam Jackson's agent that uh, they were saying, oh, do you have anything for him, anything coming up? And we said, well, maybe it'd be great. We're huge fans of his. Hey, wait a minute. Would he come in and do a cameo for us for two hours on a Saturday? And, of course, he's such a gracious guy and is so enthusiastic and loves this universe that he agreed. And that became the the tag at the end of Iron Man 1 where he came out and tells Tony Stark and tells the audience, you're part of a big universe, you just don't know it yet. That was still just sort of a dream scenario for us. Oh, boy, wouldn't it be great? And then we'll make a Cap movie and a Thor movie and... They all meet up again, you know, a summer later in, uh, in the Avengers. Wouldn't that be perfect? Thankfully, Iron Man 1 came out and did so well that we could sort of write our own ticket after that. And yeah. that's when we announced, I think the Monday after Iron Man released, that slate. Which pretty much, I think, a couple of the dates slipped. But for the most part, that's the plan that we, we've now, we're now culminating in uh, Avengers. Wow. Avengers Assemble. Of course. There you go. Is it difficult, I mean, to go now from this huge ensemble where everything's packed into it? Aliens, war, galactic carnage. Obviously, to scale back down again and do something like Thor 2, well, that's galactic in and of itself, or Iron Man 3. No, I think that's the fun, right? That's always been the idea. And all we're doing is mimicking what comic fans have been getting for years in the comics anyway, is you've got great stories and their individual titles, and then every once in a while they'll cross over for a big galactic mm-hmm. event. Um or cataclysmic event, or whatever it is that, that needs them to, to come together. So Iron Man 3, you know, has been structured specifically to sort of be the antidote to Avengers. Uh, he, 
I'm not going to give away anything yet, but <laughs> but circumstances in the story separate Tony from from uh, uh, having access to anything. We want to take Tony back to uh, to uh, metaphorically speaking to that cave from Iron Man One, the first half of Iron Man One, where he's where he's uh, cut off from the world and needs to just focus on his intellects to to get himself out of the situation. So he's not calling Thor. He's not calling uh, 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 Captain America. He can't press a special button and have the helicarrier come rescue mm-hmm. him. So I think that'll be a nice a nice uh, a compliment to, to the team up of Avengers is seeing again that in their individual stories they're just as interesting mm. particularly uh, uh, Tony and Thor and Cap as they are when they're uh, alone as they are when they're team yeah. and that's playing very much to the strengths of Iron Man is that Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark is as much of an appeal as Iron Man himself I think that's absolutely right and we and, and I think that you know we hope that that holds true with all of the characters when we're developing them we, we never call them even just in you know when, when Jeremy Latcham who's joining us here as uh, uh, a silent partner executive producer of Avengers, true partner on, on all of the uh, films, and uh, in particular the, the Iron Man franchise. We call him Tony. We call him Steve. We, you know, Thor's Thor. Um, uh, <laughs> but we, we, we really do sort of refer to these as real people, because they, you know, we're just nerdy enough that they're, that they're, <laughs> they're real to us. <laughs> and I mean, how about the, you know, the getting the group dynamics right? Because I think that was, you know, looking at it from the outside, that looked like that was going to be the big challenge. And obviously you had a huge advantage in getting Joss Whedon Absolutely. on board. Um, but I mean, almost for me, you know, this movie has incredible action scenes, but almost I would have been quite happy watching two hours of the Avengers hanging out and bickering. Would you consider doing that at some point? You know, just no action, just have them in a room. Well, the truth is that's sort of what we did in, for, for many stretches of, of this movie, right? Mm. Is that we, we always had said we were as interested in that as we were in the big action. Yeah. The big action you have to do, there needs to be a reason for them all to stand. Iron Man has won twice in his own movies. Cap was successful at turning the tide of World War II and defeating the Red Skull, and Thor uh, held his own in his own movie. Mm. You need something giant for them to need to all come together and not just trounce anything. And we wanted them very much to be behind the eight ball. Mm. It's very hard to make Thor and Cap and Iron Man and Hulk all standing together with Hawkeye and Widow, you know, sort of the underdogs. Mm. But that's what we needed to be, and we knew there'd be a lot of explosions involved in that. But it was, and that is why, you know, we were so excited when Joss agreed to, to jump on board uh, and do this for us, is that it's the scenes of them just talking, just bickering, as you say. My favorite scenes in the movies, uh, in the movie, and not giving anything away, are the ones where it's just a few of them uh, in a room together. Mm. Loki and, and Widow, in particular, have a great interaction together. Yeah. And it's just talking, and thank God, that's, uh, that's Joss's script. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And also, it, this is, uh, with no disrespect, I've, I've been a fan of, especially the Eric Banner Hulk. I liked uh, the Edward Norton Hulk. But Mark Ruffalo completely left them both in the dust, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, that's he great, was great the best Hulk by a mile. You know, that was and important Banner. to us, and, and in particular to Joss, who really want, who said, you know, frankly, we wanted to make an Avengers movie where people came out of that movie saying, when are you going to make another Hulk movie? He was my favorite character. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, we've spent, you know, over two years working to, to try to make that happen. Uh, and Joss is a strong believer in Hulk, and he's a huge proponent of Hulk, and a huge proponent of Banner as... Uh, uh, Banner not being as tortured as we've portrayed him in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, even Bixby, uh, who we still look at as the as the as the uh, you know the the true Bruce Banner, is not completely tortured through every episode. He's got a bit of a sense of humor about it. He's got a knowingness about it that uh, I think Ruffalo has matched uh, uh, in a great way. And it's, it's useful in this that you've got the other characters to act as a kind of mirror for Hulk. They, you get to see a side to him that perhaps you wouldn't see in a solo Hulk film. You know, we were we anticipated that Hulk in an ensemble setting, even if we hadn't done anything else, just put him with a group, he would stand out, right? Mm-hmm. He is. It's the reason Wolverine is the is the most popular X Men character. He's the bad boy. He's unpredictable. He doesn't quite follow the rules in a way that we all sort of think is cool. Mm. Uh, and Hulk gets to do that when he's uh, Hulk doesn't, you know. Similar to the honey badger. <laughs> Hulk doesn't... Oh, do, can we curse on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Go nuts. No, that's okay. <laughs> he is much like the honey badger. Yes, I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> now, we did also ask Kevin Feige to address a few more spoilerific matters while he was here. So once you've seen Avengers Assemble, we recommend heading back this way for a further installment of that interview where we where he discusses the film in a little bit more depth and detail, but really only once you've seen the film. Um, Avengers Assemble is obviously out this week and we'll be getting to that any second now. He's a very nice man, isn't he, Kevin? He Feige? was a very nice man, yes. Mm. For, a, for a very powerful, important Hollywood figure, he was an absolute delight. I, I first met him on the set of Thor and he came up and introduced himself and the only thing I could think to say to him was, can I call you Captain Marvel? <laughs> what said, did he say? He said no. Wow. He yeah. d- that doesn't sound so nice. 
No, I must admit I was a bit deflated, but then I was being an idiot. So, you know. <laughs> well, fair enough. Uh, but something new for you then. Mm. That's good. Uh, okay, so uh, it's time to win something cool, potentially. Um, it's competition time. Last week, we offered you the chance to win Blu-rays, soundtracks and books of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the David Fincher one. And we had an absolute flood of entries. So thank you for those. But the lucky winners are Jonathan Sale, Rob Perkins, Dean Ford, Magnus Holvold and Rosie Kinsella. So, ladies and gentlemen, congratulations. This week, we have five copies of The Iron Lady on Blu-ray to give away, and that's out from Pathé Productions Limited on April 30th. Now, to be in with chance of winning that one, you just need to tell us who succeeded Margaret Thatcher as the British Prime Minister. So, who followed her as British Prime Minister? Just send us your answers to podcast at empireonline.com, and we'll let you know if you've won this time next week. As Columbo said, just one more thing before we get to the reviews. Uh, we recently had a visit from most of the American Pie reunion crew for a web chat. Now, you can read the full transcript of that on empireonline.com. But while they were here, we nabbed Eugene Levy and Jennifer Coolidge, Jim's dad and Stifler's mum, in other words, and brought them up to the pod room to quiz them a little bit about the series and the new film. And here are the results. Hello, how do you do? I'm good. I'm doing great, actually. I, I We have one more uh, day. In fact, we leave later today. I've been here about four days, and I really hate to leave, <laughs> I have to say. Have you gotten to do anything fun in London? Have you been sitting in hotel rooms talking here, to Here, mostly sitting in hotel rooms, unfortunately. Lovely hotel. But uh, the most fun thing uh, I think we did was um, a uh, kind of a photo shoot on top of a double-decker driving Mm -hmm. around London uh, so that they could get some nice little backdrops like, you know, Big Ben behind, you know, the group. Uh, And it was my first time on a double-decker. And just driving around town on a double-decker was Mm. kind of a kick. Yeah, that's See? cool. You get to do the tourist yeah, thing. Yeah, I know a lot of you locals working. are sitting there going, <laughs> it's such a tourist. <laughs> but uh, that was a fun thing for me. Um, so tell us about the film. I mean, you know, when they when they mooted to you the idea of coming back and, and being rejoined by all the original cast members, what, what was your initial reaction? Um, well, there were two things. One, I was a little shocked that they that there was the, the another one uh and the other thing uh was uh i was a little i i was a little nervous about it uh because i th- thought what are they going to do how how are they going to stretch this into a fourth installment since number 3 was really supposed to be the last one um and, uh, you know, I had a meeting with uh, the two writers and uh, the, the two guys who directed it as well, John Hurwitz and Hayden Schlossberg, and they pitched the storyline, what they were going to do to me, and that's when I actually started to get excited because I realized, wait a minute, this is going to be a funny movie, and they are moving it in a forward direction it's not just treading water. We're, we're mm. you know, they're they're actually giving the characters really fun things to do, and they're giving the 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 entire movie the same sensibility that the first American Pie had. Yeah. You know, so it was in good hands. I felt pretty good. So J- Jim's dad is he's obviously the first three American Pie movies, but also the straight to DVD um, yes. movies as well. Yes. Do you feel a sense of? I mean, you're these are the character that's kind of endured throughout all of that his art continued do you feel a sense of sort of proprietorship about uh, the franchise do you see those films as part of the canon or they just no uh they're not i i i don't view them as a uh, part of the canon i those were a separate uh, deal those were um those were for me strictly a, a business proposition yeah hello jennifer <laughs> hello we've been joined by jennifer you guys traveling around together for I don't know several, several weeks on the promotional tour. Yeah, you have a yeah kind of party time, or is it is it solid hard work throughout? It well, it's hard. It's it's you know the 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 idea of doing interviews is there. You know, I wouldn't call it working in the salt mines. Okay, <laughs> but we have been having a lot of fun. We've been. You know, we've been, you know, going out, able to, you know, have great dinners and... and yeah. It's a lot... You have to have a... Uh, you have to have an incredible m- amount of energy for a very 
long period of time. And so I do feel like after, when these things end, you re- you crash and burn. I don't know about you, when, when that last one ended. Oh, I, you're down you for just, like you, three days. You're really, you can't really fuck. It's sort yeah. of weird. It's all, but it is, it's incredibly fun at certain moments because just when you're like, I'm going to bed, someone offers you something you you won't wouldn't normally get. Um, like they're like, you know, I just wanted to give you a quick helicopter ride around the city, <laughs> or something like that. And then you're like, well, I can't pass this up, or you know, like you know, we have this. We just rented this great boat. We're gonna go down the Seine now, and can't can't you just come along? And and then you feel like, well, I can, you know, sleep when I'm dead. But um, <laughs> you know, but uh, then you really do pay like i do sometimes feel like i look like i've been hit by a shovel in the face (laughs) on some of these mornings i know this is an audio recording but i'd just like people to know that you don't look like you've been hit in the face today so well well done i've never seen that you've been you've had your share of admirers in london since you've been here is that right somebody came up and asked you out on a date yes is that correct i know i know i always have a good time in london i think it's because um even more i think more so than, than the united states the London boy really would, you know, wants the experienced woman. I think that's sort of, <laughs> I think it's more of a European fantasy than it is an American fantasy. So I, I, I get more, I, I get out, asked out here way more than, and Scotland too, Scotland too. I, for some reason, they they would rather ask me out here than, you know, than, you know way more than, than the United States. Happy days. Yeah. So I, I have no complaints <laughs> about your country. No, but the, the French boys, a couple of them gave me flower arrangements, like, like 15 year old French boys gave me flower uh, arrangements that no man in my lifetime <laughs> has ever given. I was like, this is the most elaborate, beautiful flower range I've ever seen. It's like some young kid, I don't even know where he got the money to buy these things. I don't know where they, was so tasteful. So in that case, maybe this, the Stifler's mom storyline was the reason that this has been such a big success overseas as well as uh, in the US in that case. You know, because you've got that whole kind of toy boy, older woman aspect that's clearly connecting with the rest of the world, whereas oh, presumably question. America is connecting to, you know, the slightly more... Well, I think that's absolutely yeah. true. Familiar Jim and Jim's dad. I, I mean, I do think that the American Pie would have still been great without Stifler's mom. I still think the boys are the key, you know, kid. And and Jim's dad that is really I think that's the key to American Pie and I think I got to be sort of I'm glad Stifler's mom is all part of it, mm-hmm. but I think um you know, they could have had you know, grandma jelly in the story and um, so well, here's what I know about the <laughs> every time we do a Q&A and go to a premiere, mm. you know, the, the the huge reaction is when Stifler's mom walks out <laughs> on the stage. So there is like, I wouldn't just say it's, uh, you know, it, we'd be coasting along that well, <laughs> you know, without it, because it's the, you know, the following has just been like growing and growing and growing mm. for, you know, for this character. It's just uh, people love this character. I would, I would say that's true of, of both your characters, actually. I mean, but d- this time around, you you finally really have some screen time together, which we haven't yeah. seen before. So was that something that you campaigned for, or was it given that you've worked together in other places, or, or did it just come up and it felt right? Well, it was just in the... It's just what the uh, boys came up with when they, uh, cr- you know, kind of uh, c- created this mm-hmm. story. It was, uh, you know, when, uh, as I said, when they pitched the storyline to me one of the exci- I mean I was excited about everything I was listening to every every character and what they were doing and what the background they were giving them and and what's going to happen when they come back for the reunion and um, and with me it was uh, one of one of the great things that I jumped up and down was when they said you're you know you're you're walking through this uh, party and you open a door and then Stifler's mom turns around and I just <laughs> it, I wasn't expecting that at all and i thought wow that's brilliant that's great that's really great jim's dad made stifler's mom and and uh so there we go and then we had some good good stuff to do at the uh you know at the party so it was fun well yeah i think you know sometimes when you have like james there's nothing wrong with like james bond in bed with like you know a really hot bond girl Mm -hmm. that's very sexy but there's something about a man that isn't really promiscuous, an mm-hmm. innocent man getting, let's say, what would be the word, um, getting... You're describing this very well so far, because <laughs> yeah, it could have come out a lot worse. <laughs> getting, um, uh, what's it? Seduced? Uh, no. Yeah, seduced or... Um, 
take maybe taken advantage of educated no that's very nice yeah 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 it's almost more fun to see uh an innocent man be educated than you know than a man that has it all going on with another person has it all going on you know it's um you know it's sort of i was wondering in terms of like you both come from improvisational backgrounds did you get the chance to to sort of do that together in this film i mean with a christopher guest obviously that's giving you the opportunity to to improv yeah is it the same on on american pie yeah actually it was pretty loose on american pie they they um i mean the the scenes were funny they were written funny but they they really encouraged you to play around and you know come up with uh, that's that's what they wanted they got a kick out of it and of course if you come up with good lines they it don't i mean obviously it only looks good on them because they get the writing credit you know yeah. what i mean but yeah so it was fun it really was and i i, re- I remember i mean i i remember there was a lot of kind of playing around there were some great lines they'd written but i think uh it kind of changed around from take to take you know the line lines would change do you have a favorite line from the from the from the series so far do you remember particular particular moments with great with great sort of great fondness well you have some you have some killer lines uh well i i had some yes i i mean i had some great lines i mean i, I you know I, I i think my my last line is one of the great lines i mean it's a great line to close a movie <laughs> Um, but um, I, uh, Jennifer came up with the line on one take, and it—I uh, mean, it was fun. It's in the movie, talking about her son and what he what he loves to do from time to time, and it just kind of <laughs> took me, and I started laughing, and I was laughing. I mean, that was, and it's there, it's it's there on film. So that's that just kind of came out of the blue. <laughs> Uh, yeah, good, good stuff. I mean, I think everybody, I think every character, well, maybe not every character, but certainly, uh, you know, Jim, Jason uh, improvises a lot. Stiff Sean throws in some great lines. Um, it's nice when you're able to do that, when you don't have to stick to what's there, you know, because you're just, you're just, a, you just feel like you're looser if you, if you know that, you know, if you can't remember your lines, for instance, and think, well, I'll just, yeah. I'll just make some stuff up. You are by far the funniest. When we go around to these screening rooms and we walk in and we do Q and A's, uh-huh. I have to say, you know, we each have to like answer some questions. But when you, when it's just you and the microphone and the audience, you well, you win, you win, Eugene. Yeah, I'm the frustrated. <laughs> you are, you're the funniest. I'm, I'm the frustrated stand-up. <laughs> I have one question I've got to ask uh, Jennifer. We, we know that, uh, that no, Noah, Jim's dad, has a wild side after this film. Does Janine, Stifler's mom, secretly have a really boring side? Does she does she stay home at night and listen to Herman's Hermits while doing Sudoku? Gosh, you know, it's so funny you say that. I think there was a sad side mm. to Janine, which, you know, you don't really talk about when you're doing promoting American Pie. But I always thought that I was having sort of... I, I feel like uh, Janine has had a lot of empty sex, but I don't think there's one boring thing about her. <laughs> I really don't. I I um, I think... I mean, that sounds impossible for a human being, but I think... Um, boring so is not a word I would use, I don't think, yeah. to, uh, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, what word would you use, Eugene? For Stifler's mom? Mm. Oh, uh, uh, you, you know, there's a million words. Sultry... Uh, mysterious, uh, <laughs> yes, professorial. Um, sure. Um, we think we've got to wrap up. A very, very last question, Christopher Guest. Any, any plans? Any murmurs of a plan? Do you, do you guys talk regularly with him about things? Because we loved the uh, the Oscars piece this year. It was just yeah, genius. Oh, that was so genius. Big to be I wonder in where that. where that. No, but you know Eugene is, is is very. He's like best friends with Chris, and he actually you just had lunch with. Well, him. I just had lunch yeah. with him the other day. Yeah. He's in London. He, yeah, you know we no. The answer is n- no, not at the present. Although we're we're, uh, you know, still trying to come up with something that we feel will be a a a good fifth movie that will kind of make it different than the other movies. We just you know. Yeah, we uh, just haven't come up with it yet. You know, we're we're being a little lazy. <laughs> Watch this space. More lunches. <laughs> thank you very much. All right. Well, Jennifer Coolidge and Eugene Levy, thank you very much. Thank and, you very uh, much. Yeah. Thanks Here for giving can... me the bright green one, <laughs> bright green microphone. 
At last, it's time to kick off this week's reviews. So we're going to start things with a film led by a guy dressed in red who's capable of incredible things. I mean, of course, Being Elmo, which is the documentary about puppeteer, indeed Muppeteer, Kevin Clash. Now, you probably haven't heard of this one. It's not one of the big releases this week, but it's a fantastic little film. Uh, Kevin Clash is this guy, uh, amazing, amazing figure. He he grew up on a really kind of blue-collar estate, um, became fascinated with watching Sesame Street on TV, Jim Henson's uh, Sesame Street, and just wanted to be part of that and started building his own puppets and putting on his own puppet shows, got on local TV by the time he was in his teens. Um and got recruited by Jim Henson pretty much straight out of school to grow up and join his crew. And since then, he's become the, the guy who does Elmo, and he's the guy who made Elmo into the phenomenon we all know and love. And it's really fascinating. What's involved in being Elmo on like a daily basis? Um, well, I mean, the, 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 the interesting thing, obviously, about the Muppets uh, and the Sesame Street gang is they all have one guy or one person who does mm. that character. So it's not like, you know, Elmo's being passed around from puppeteer to puppeteer. But uh, yeah, he, he basically, you know, performs on the show uh, still and any public engagements that Elmo has, he'll go along and do the public mm. um, engagements. And he also is involved with, you know, just putting the show together. He's now a producer um, for Sesame Street and so on. So he's just involved in basically everything. And he still makes time, as this documentary makes clear, just makes time for kids, for people who love puppets, for people who love Elmo. There's a heartbreaking scene with a little girl from a sort of Make-A-Wish foundation who basically just wants to meet Elmo. And even though the puppeteer is right there, visibly moving the rods and, you know... Visibly moving the mouth, she's just talking to Elmo. It's, it's, <laughs> oh. it's quite simply the most adorable documentary you're going to see this year. Oh. Elmo is a business in his own right. He is a mm. Goliath. He, I mean, as a figure in children's entertainment, he is Sesame Street to some people. Mm. For me, uh, Elmo, the reason why I love this guy, I haven't even watched the film, but I, I'm really looking forward to seeing it because there's a great video of him with Ricky Gervais, and I don't like Ricky Gervais that much, but him chatting with Ricky Gervais is one of the funniest things you'll see. <laughs> Genuinely, it's three minutes, and I promise you, you will not stop laughing. Is that when Ricky starts making paedophile gags? He kind of, yes. He says, he says, don't say that word, that's not right. But yeah, he doesn't like make jokes about paedophiles, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. See, wh- when did Elmo join the Sesame Street gang? Well, the interesting thing in, in that this film kind of reveals is that somebody had tried to do Elmo before. One of the classic kind of Sesame Street crew, the original crew, had got this puppet and, and tried a character with him and it just didn't work. And he said, listen, this doesn't work. Gave it to the very young Kevin Clash and said, see if you can figure out something to do with this guy and he went away and worked on it and basically came back with Elmo so that was sort of 80s I guess late 80s because he's after my time I used to watch Sesame Street and I remember mm. Grover who was like blue Elmo mm, yeah um, I remember Grover too but Elmo no no he's after my time yeah as well so it was late 80s I guess early 90s I um, remember him but yeah lovely chap <laughs> <laughs> he, he's no snuffleupagus Okay, well, being Elmo, um, if you can get to see it, I, we do recommend it. Um, Empire gave it three stars. That was Kim Newman. Uh, I personally liked it a bit more than that, but uh, three stars is definitely still a re- recommendation, so do seek it out. Um, but now here's the one you've been waiting for. It's a film from a cult director returning to the screen after a break with a film that's both funny, feminist, and his highest profile yet. I am, of course, talking about Damsels in Distress, the new college set comedy from Wit Stillman. Well, it's, yeah, as you say, he's been away a long time, Wit Stillman. Mm. He's something of a of an indie an indie darling and if you've seen Metropolitan or Barcelona The Last Days of Disco you'll know that he creates kind of worlds that no other filmmaker kind of gets near to they're, they're quirky they're talky articulate smart characters that he's very fond of um, and this one again it's probably going to polarise people I would say mm. it's you know it's got Greta Gerwig playing one of a group a gaggle of, of undergraduate <laughs> girls who's who's kind of raison d'etre is to try and kind of convert to civility this group of, of you know it's like animal house like kind of frat boys they are basically idiots one of them is called Thor so there's a bit of a double <laughs> Thor this week and he doesn't know his colours um, <laughs> so this is the kind of world where, where he mixes kind of serious issues these girls work in a suicide prevention centre um, at one point the sign on the suicide prevention centre the word prevention falls off um, <laughs> so it's got visual gags in it and it's got serious serious stuff like suicide but then you've got one of the the doofuses the doofi that they, mm. you know of the film these frat boys you know trying to kill himself by jumping off a one story building <laughs> um, and just ending up twisting his ankle so it, it's, it's a mix of tones that won't necessarily be to everyone's taste but I've got to say I really like 
like Whit Stillman, mm. Whit Stillman's films. They are like nobody else's. Um, there's bits that remind you of Woody Allen, who's probably the filmmaker that he gets compared with the most. Yeah. Um, partly because it's that kind of East Coast intelligence here. It's very smart and very talky. Waspish. Um, yeah, waspish. But I think Whit Stillman's godfather actually created the term wasp. Bit yeah. of trivia there. Um, but that's the world he's unashamedly a part of. But yeah, he went to Harvard. He, you know, we when we spoke to him, he 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 said that he didn't really enjoy the social network for the for the way it portrayed Harvard. And this film is set in a minor Ivy League college, but it's a kind of crazy, quirky world. And as I say, it's it's not Marmite film. It's I'd probably say it's like gentleman's relish you know some people <laughs> some people will love it a lot of people I think will just be completely bamboozled I really want to see it again and I think that's you know that's that's there's a lot in it that made me laugh and there's a lot of a lot of laughs in the yeah. in, in the screening that I saw Gerwig's very funny in it though I mean you know after playing sort of love interests and in things like Arthur she actually really gets to kind of strut her own stuff in yeah. this, doesn't she she does she does you're right and she's you know she's another indie darling and I think she's kind of something mm. of a of a muse for Whit Stillman apparently she she tap danced Un- unrequested at the audition and uh, <laughs> her character yeah her character um, you know advocates tap dancing and perfume and coffee and donuts as cures for depression um, it's that kind of film and she's that kind of character there's something of like Chloe Sevigny in her mm. I think that kind of slightly quirky um, indie kind of star that, that, that excels at this kind of material so we've given it four stars mm. and I really liked it but as I say I would say as a proviso not everybody will probably if you found that kind of person at school intensely annoying don't go and watch this film if you are that person <laughs> yeah. at yeah. school go and watch this thanks film. Sally <laughs> <laughs> but also I mean it's a bit you know uh, Whitsum was a, a bit of a formative influence on the likes of Wes Anderson yeah. so that's maybe a good guideline as well if you like Wes Anderson films this might be more likely to be your street yeah than, absolutely you know if you're into Michael Bay yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's a bit of Wes Anderson there, and I think Wes Anderson is influenced by Whit Stillman, and, and Whit Stillman says that he's now influenced by Wes Anderson as well. In fact, he said that, because they both lived in Paris for a while, mm. I think they're both now back in America, but um, Wes Anderson met his girlfriend on who was working on a Whit Stillman film, so huh. there's a little kind of indie... Um, help me out with the word that isn't incestuous. I was about yet. to say club. <laughs> I was about to say club. club is dating agency. <laughs> it's an indie dating agency. I don't know. But anyway, the, the, there's the, yeah, I think that's fair. If you like Wes Anderson, then, then give this a shot. Okay, fair enough. Okay, finally, it is time uh, to talk about uh, Avengers Assemble. So this, as you all know, is Marvel's superhero mashup. Four franchise leads taking on an army of extraterrestrials led by an angry demigod. Uh, Joss Whedon's in the director's chair and, of course, it stars Robert Downey Jr., Mark Ruffalo, Samuel L. Jackson, Scarlett Johansson, Chris's Hemsworth and Evans, Tom Hiddleston, Jeremy Renner and Clark Gregg. What did we think? Well, it's great, isn't it? It is. It really is. It's really good. Um... Such a relief. I was so worried going in it wasn't going to yeah. you know, live up to all the, the planning that had gone into it. No, it's really good and it's really Joss Whedon and it's kind of everything I think you wanted from this. And it is greater, it is more than the sum of its parts. I think it's better than any of the, the component movies. I agree. Uh, by some substantial margin, actually. No, it's, it's just really good. There's lots of action in it. The dialogue is amazing, uh, The as one would expect from Joss Whedon. Mm. Everything involving the Hulk is just brilliant. I, I think if I had... Um, one issue with it, and we've talked about this a little bit in the office, my, my only sort of gripe with it is that they made a big uh, deal out of they had to amp up the threat. If you've got all of these superhumans and they can all sort of take on you know, superpowered enemies in their own right, having the team of them together, it's very hard to imperil them. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I don't think they necessarily succeed in doing so. I think Tom Hiddleston is utterly brilliant and just hilarious as Loki and he has his army Loki's army that he brings with him but I never got the feeling they were ever in any danger I never really worried about them you know it felt a little bit like um, a computer game you know they just seemed like cannon fodder to me the aliens did well yeah but there was huge huge numbers of them and they had these enormous beasties that you've seen in the trailer (laughs) so I was I just thought that was just fine actually because I think with the exception of Batman Returns um, which got away with spending loads of time on the bad guys. I think far too many films spend far too long on the bad guys to the detriment of the good guys. And when you have essentially six or eight maybe core good guys, you've got to give them time to kind of interact. But, you know, to me, to me, the point was never the bad guys. And I thought there was enough there going on, but not enough to kind of distract. Well, it, also, it has the benefit of enjoying 
essentially 12 hours of exposition, doesn't it? Because yes. it's, it's got all these... You know who these characters are, you're familiar with them, they don't need to be introduced. It's interesting to see what people who've not seen any of the other films Yeah, but that's think. a good yeah. point, and I think... I mean, I went with my girlfriend, she hadn't seen any of the other films, and she really enjoyed it. Mm. I think that the writing is that sharp, that there is probably enough mini-exposition at the beginning of this film for people who've come in cold to really get it straight mm. away. I just thought the writing was brilliant, and I agree with you. I think, you know, it didn't need... I thought the last action scene sequence was just a little protracted, if anything. I loved it. I thought it was great. I think, you know, with, with, a, with a director like Joss Whedon coming into this... You with no risk- real... With, Let's be yeah. action, you know, action credentials. Yeah. I mean, Serenity's a great film, but it's not, you know... It's not an action yeah. movie. And there was always going to be that risk of, oh, OK, he'll be able to handle the group dynamics, but can he handle the action scenes? And I thought he did. Oh, I just mm. loved it. There was something for everybody to do, especially Hulk. I mean, Mark Ruffalo's Hulk is is head and shoulders above the others. I mean, I, I really love Eric Banner's Hulk. I quite liked Edward Norton's, but this one it absolutely yeah, 100% he's nails it. This is the first movie in a very long time where you're sitting in your seat as the credits roll and normally when you watch a movie, you want to get up after the credits, but you are so blown away by how much you just simply enjoyed it. I think, you know, in the couple of weeks since I watched this film, there have been a couple of fridge logic moments when I've been getting the milk out and going, how did that? Okay, forget about it. But really, I promise you won't get an intense, as big a rush of enjoyment from watching a big mm. blockbuster movie so far this year at least you Definitely. can't leave a Marvel film before the end of the credits though obviously well, there is I that. no longer leave any film before the end of the credits just in case there's like a sting just in case in Nick Fury turns yeah, up just in case yeah. Dances in Distress has a sting Greta, and, we need you yeah quite so <laughs> The thing yeah. is, it, being a comic book movie and being the kind of huge, explosive, action-focused comic book movie, it's going to draw a lot of people who turn their noses up at it. And Tom Hiddleston wrote a really interesting piece in The Guardian, mm. actually, justifying the Avengers and saying how you know people sort of denigrate it as a lesser form of the art, but actually it does stand on its own two feet. Mm. Although I will say, lots of people came out of Avengers saying, it's the best comic book movie ever. It isn't. Um, it is. It isn't. There I I would put the Dark Knight above it. I would put uh, X Men Two above it. Um, uh, mm, I, I I would put the Dark Knight in a different category just to cheat. Um, but I actually I watched X Men Two a couple of nights before going in to see this. Funny enough, and I thought this was was more fun. Now obviously, you know I'm going to have to go back and see it four or five more times for research to uh, to be 100 percent sure of that verdict. But <laughs> I I honestly think this is and I, you know this this comes from a Wolverine fangirl. But I think this one was just phenomenal. I don't know if you've noticed that I really enjoyed it. I mean, yes, I, don't know if you do give I loved it as well. I but it say. is, I mean, didn't we, we talked about in the office when we were saying about, you mentioned putting Dark Knight in a different category, that comparing Dark Knight with the Avengers was like comparing Heat with Independence Day. Do you think that's fair, <laughs> Phil? Um, the tone is just totally yeah. different. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess it is in a weird way. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't think it's, you know, I think what what unites them is they both have good characters and good writing. Mm. And it's a soap superhero movie where, you know, each of the characters are kind of relatable in a weird way. Um, you know, whether it's Hulk's kind of issues and, and, and trying to get away, escapism, and, and, and or, you know, even Thor, fish out of water, Captain America, all that kind of stuff. There's, there's you know, at its core, it's um, it's got great characters. And... Mm. You know, the, like you say, Whedon's action sequences are fantastic, but that's just the sort of cherry, yeah, cherry on the icing. Exactly, and full marks as well to you know the like the sort of the human players. I mean, Clark Gregg uh, back as Agent Coulson, just wonderful as ever. Um, newcomer Kobe Smulders, uh, at least newcomer to the franchise. Obviously, she's in How I Met Your Mother and yes, all that. She is. But uh, she's rather good as as uh, Nick Fury's kind of right hand woman, Maria Hill. In summary, Avengers, yay. The Empire Review gave it a very strong four stars, um, and uh, we all rather liked it. If you were listen to this podcast and think, you know what, I love movies, but I just can't justify spending that amount of money because they cost so much these days, or whatever it is that you're thinking, spend the money on this one. Yeah. Please see it in the big screen. Whereas I can understand why people went, all right, Captain America, I might watch that one on DVD. Do not do that here. Go and watch. Amen well, here's a question. Now, Helen, you've seen Avengers Assemble twice. You've seen it once in 2D, once in 3D. Which yes. would you recommend? I would recommend the 2D. Thank you for asking. Um, the 3D is a good conversion, but it's still a conversion. And I think what happens is you film things differently if you're using 3D. So, for example, if there's a shot of two characters talking and you, you, know, you see one character over the other character's shoulder, um, the shoulder's out of focus, which is what we expect in 2D. But in 3D, what you've got is an autofocus shoulder and then the perception of depth before the actual second character. And it's just a bit 
annoying and it was actually more annoying in those kind of talking scenes than it was in the action scenes the action scenes do look very very good in 3d so 3d is not to be actively avoided it's good but if you have the choice i personally would go for 2d but then josh whedon as far as i know hasn't even watched the 3d version has he because he he was quite vocal about distancing himself from the 3dification of avengers yeah i mean andrew stanton did the same thing for john john carter i think it's it's a sort of thing where they've gone i can't handle having another thing to juggle here I don't I don't really care about 3D. Give it to people who do care. Let them do whatever they want with it. But that's not what my focus is right now. My focus is on, you know, getting the movie right. So, uh, yes, Avengers, go see it on the big screen if you can. Uh, that's your lot for this week's Empire podcast. Uh, next week, we'll be snacking on American Pie reunion, getting lucky with Zac Efron in The Lucky One, and recruiting Jason Statham as our bodyguard in Safe. We'll also be bringing you a very exciting interview with Game of Thrones creator George R.R. R. Martin. Squee! So don your chainmail and boiled leather and prepare yourself for that one. James is already excited. Um, and while we're here, the new issue of Empire Magazine has hit newsstands yesterday and it's a Bond special with exclusive access to the Skyfall set and coverage of the franchise so good that it makes even me fall in love with it. We also have the latest on Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, Ryan Johnson's Looper and much more. So head on over to empireonline.com to see details of what else there is in it this month and where you can pick one up. And with that, the only thing left for me to do is to say goodbye to James. Bye. Goodbye to Ali. Goodbye. And to Phil. Cheerio. And thank you all for listening.